0: This podcast was recorded at Grace Point Church of Orville. For more information, visit us online at orogracepoint.com. Continuing on with chapter 4 in our book, The Kingdom Coming and the People Prepared. Last week we left off recognizing that Jesus had come announcing God's sovereign and saving rule. And doing things which demonstrated its presence and power in a world that was already governed by hostile powers. And so in declaring that God's kingdom had arrived, Jesus was effectively saying that all of these other lords, all these other powers, were in the process of being dethroned. And that is well and good, but what we saw is there's a complicating factor. And where we left off was just noting and not really exploring the complicating factor. Namely, that God's people themselves had become part of the problem. So the prophet Jeremiah declares in Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. A writer asks, pessimistic? And then answers, no, Realistic. And that's very, very true. It's not just crying wolf, but it is this recognition that, contrary to popular opinion, the devil is not your biggest problem. In fact, the world is not your biggest problem. Most of the time, you are your biggest problem. That's where the real struggle takes place. Jesus comes defeating the powers of this world. If we're not careful, we can spend the bulk of our time and energy fighting the devil and the world and not focusing on the fact that really where the root of the problem lies is within the human heart. Jesus comes to address that as well. He doesn't just address the question of the external powers. Just as his kingdom announcement is not made into empty space, He doesn't come preaching in neutral territory. He comes preaching to hostile powers and declaring that their end was at hand. So also, his challenge to each human life was not posed to people who have hearts, and the phrase that our writer uses, is a nice one, this tabula rasa, this blank slate, this clean wax tablet ready for fresh writing. But when Jesus comes declaring the kingdom, He's speaking to people who already have habits of heart. He's not just preaching to people who have been in stasis and they have no thought patterns, they have no present habits of life. They already have habits. They already have imaginations. They already have thought processes. And generally, they were the wrong habits, the wrong thoughts, the wrong imaginations. And so one way to think about this Declaration from Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful and it's desperately wicked. What we see is that not only are the habits of the heart often wrong, but more often than not, they masquerade as proper ones. So, part of the challenge is not just coming to a group of people who already have habits, it's coming to a group of people who have habits of heart that are not in alignment with God's kingdom. And then there's one more layer. Those habits of heart that are not in alignment with God's kingdom, more often than not, they masquerade as if they were. So you see the depth of the problem. It's not just, let me show you the right way. It's you're practicing the wrong habits. And you're practicing the wrong habits while masquerading as if you're doing the right thing. So there's a lot that Jesus has to work with and try to reorient when he comes preaching to people. On the one hand, yes, he's confronting Caesar. He's confronting Rome. He's confronting the devil. He's confronting all the powers that are aligned with the kingdoms of this world. But he also has a striking challenge to each and every individual. You also must be transformed. If you look at one of his Very striking teachings in Mark chapter 7. This is one that was mentioned in our reading. Beginning in verse 14. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of you that by going into you can defile you. But the things that come out of you are what defile you. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them, since it enters not their heart but their stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, Whatever comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart of humans, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So, Jesus, when he comes to challenge individuals, again, he's not just coming to give a new overlay, he's saying, You need to look deeper. It's not just the things that you are doing, but if we're really going to fix this problem, we're going to have to address the question of the human heart. This is controversial now, and it was then. Have to understand something about the larger context in which Jesus is preaching. This is very sensitive terrain, so to speak. Our writer mentions briefly. These Jewish freedom fighters, you can read about these folks in the Maccabees where they're trying to overthrow foreign oppressors. And they are held up as noble, heroic figures, people who took a stand for God. They're often described in terms of the Old Testament heroes and prophets of old. And what you read in some of these stories and traditions that are circulating in Jesus' time is that some of these freedom fighters had, in fact... Chosen death over eating unclean food. So, this was not just a theoretical exercise. Jesus, when he's talking about it's not what you eat that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of you, he's touching on some really hot button issues because they were holding up as exemplars, as heroic figures, people who rather than eat unclean things, had been willing to die. That's how strongly they felt about this. In a world where they had all of these other idolatrous and pagan cultures pushing in upon them, trying to influence them, one of the ways that they pushed back against those forces were through their food laws. Within this theme or this idea, you find Daniel and his friends in Babylon They had adopted that same perspective. One way you know we are not like you is because we don't eat like you. That's how we know that we are staying true to God and to what God has called us to do. And Jesus says, that's actually not really the way that this stuff works. It's not a matter of, you know, you're following God because you don't eat stuff. It's not the stuff that you're eating that's causing the problems. And it's not by avoiding certain foods that you're going to solve the problem because the difficulties, the chaos, the ways in which you are participating in these other kingdoms. Because if you'll notice, that list of stuff that Jesus goes through, all these evil things, these are all characteristics of the slave life. These are habits of death. These are the things associated with the other kingdoms. The way that you deal with this problem is by having your heart transformed. You look in the gospel, what's striking is that Jesus declares that his kingdom, this work that he is announcing, this ministry that he's been given, at its core is in fact the cure for this sickness of the heart. So Jesus doesn't just come pointing out the problem, but he couples that with his teaching that the solution for that problem is, in fact, the kingdom of God. That when God's rule and reign comes to bear in your life, it's not just a matter of one more set of things to do, but finally, we're going to get to the root of this problem. You can take a four-year-old and put him in time out for being selfish. When they're 22, that opportunity has long since passed. Long since past. And Jesus here is not saying that what had happened before was wrong. He's not saying all that the law of Moses, that that's invalid. Oh, on the contrary. Jesus believes very much in the law of Moses and the teachings and the commandments of God. He's simply saying that's not the solution. Paul talks about the law being a schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you really want to fix this, you're going to have to fix the heart. And the early church, they grasped this. They got it. When you look in the book of Acts and in the other writings of the apostles, the various epistles, you see that they understand Jesus came to cleanse the heart. Jesus came to wash and renew the inner person so that we could begin to practice These new habits, these new forms of life that are associated with God's kingdom. Acts 15.9, Peter speaks about God cleansing the hearts of the Gentiles by faith. In 1 John 1.7, the writer declares that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Jesus himself told his own disciples in John 15.3, that you have already been made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. So what we see is there's a lot of images that are used to describe this process. Faith, the blood of Jesus, the word of Jesus, but the net result is the same, a cleansed heart. Now, framing it this way, I think, is really, really important because what it helps us see is that the cleansing of the heart, the forgiveness of sins, is not just a matter of all the things I did wrong, I'm now excused from that. The punishment set aside. When I die, I'm good to go. I'm not going to go to hell. That's a shallow framing of things. What we see when you bring this notion of the cleansing of the heart into the conversation with Jesus' ongoing declaration of the kingdom and the need that you have to have a cleansed heart to fully participate in the work of God that's breaking into our world is that we see This cleansing, this washing, this renewal is not just old sins being wiped out, but it's a cure for the hardness of heart. It's the undoing of the effects of human hard-heartedness and a restoration for the human to their original purpose in creation. Jesus came to put all things right, and part of that process includes putting humans back together in the way that they're supposed to be. Cleansing of the heart isn't just forgiveness so that I'll be okay when I die. It's not just my past wrongs being forgiven, but it's the inner renewal that's needed if I really want to be the human that God intended for me to be now. Of course, that involves taking care of the past. But as we all know, it's not enough just to take care of the past because I have to live today. You come to the Lord, ask forgiveness, forgives all your sins, and then you're perfect. No. You see in church history, they've wrestled with this concept. Some people have taught, once you repent and you're saved, if you sin after that, you're toast. It's over. You're done. They're misunderstanding what's happening. It's not a matter of, well, that stuff's gone and now I'm ready to die. (laughs) No, no, it's that stuff is taken care of, but it's taken care of as a result of God renewing my heart. When God cleanses and renews the inner person, that addresses the past, but it does more than address the past. It equips me and empowers me now to live in newness of life, the habits and practices of the heart and the life that we're called to that demonstrate in advance that God's kingdom is, in fact, turning the world right side up. If you remember our earlier lessons, the goal is God is going to cleanse everything. God is going to renew and transform all of creation. The epistle of Peter talks about this purification process where the fire of God purges down to the very elements, creating a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells, where things are as they're supposed to be. The big picture is all things are going to be renewed and restored. What Jesus tells his followers is that this work begins with the human heart. That's why it's important for the heart to be transformed and washed. Not just so that we can get to heaven one of these days. We need our hearts to be transformed now so that we can anticipate. We can go out and show the first fruits of the renewal and the cleansing and the restoration that one day will, in fact, encompass all of creation. This is why. Throughout the entire history of Christian faith, baptism has been such an important thing because baptism is that moment where you actually see in tangible form this entire reality being recapitulated in the life of the individual. Baptism, it's the microcosm of this big giant picture. If you want to know what God is doing in all of creation, come to a baptism. Where the old is washed away and you become something new. You are baptized into Christ. Old things pass away. All things become new. Think about that image. This is the water of baptism. This is where we meet Jesus who entered into the waters himself to identify with us. And we enter the water to identify with him, and we're washed and renewed so that we can walk and be the people that God wants us to be. Jesus is not making all this stuff up, he is standing within the long history, the talos, if you will, of Scripture. Look at those verses that our writer uh, pointed out in the chapter, they're really important. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The prophet saying the day's coming. Yes, there's going to be a forgiveness. The old things are going to be washed away, but it's coupled with a new heart. I am going to write on their hearts. It's not going to be an external thing imposed from the outside. It's going to be this internal new creation. Ezekiel, writing in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25. The Lord speaking through the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Couple of interesting things here. There's this cleansing process. Ezekiel saying you need to be cleansed. You need to be washed, you need to be purified. I'm going to do that. And part of that process involves me giving you a new heart. So when Jesus stands within this trajectory and preaches and teaches his followers about food and the kingdom and all of these other associated things, what he's saying about Christian virtue is this. First, God must cleanse the heart. If God doesn't cleanse and transform the heart, you're not going to be able to walk in this new pathway. No amount of rules, no amount of following your own inner desire is going to help you get there. You have to have a transformation of heart. Now, what we see with these scriptures and also Jesus' own teaching, including the one that we read in Mark 7, is that Jesus took it for granted, as all these other folks did, that the behaviors he listed are wrong. All of these things, wickedness, slander, pride, deceit, the rules still matter. Again, and it's important to note this, we're not playing off virtue and character against rules. We're trying to situate rules within the proper framing so that they make sense. The rules follow the transformation of the heart. You can't get to the right place just by doing all the things that you think you're supposed to do. It takes a work of God to transform you, to empower you. Otherwise, Jesus' message would just be one more self-help message. And that's not the gospel. It is popular today, I know that, to recast the gospel in terms of this self-help, self-empowerment movement. That's not scripture, though. This is not one of those things where you learn the right techniques and then you go practice them long enough and make yourself into a better person. Are we called to anticipate and practice the habits of heart and life that go along with the kingdom? Yes, but that's only possible once God has begun a work of renewal in our own hearts. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, I know I'm getting a little head with Paul, he's in our next chapter, but it's important just to note briefly here, in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, Paul talks about the kingdom of God. And he says, don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to give a whole list of characteristics of unrighteousness. It's important to point out here, he's not talking about, if you do these things when you die, maybe you're going to burn. That's not even on the radar here. He's saying the kingdom of God that Jesus has been preaching, it's breaking into our world. And if you want to inherit that, you can't do these sorts of things. They're incompatible with the kingdom of God. God's Justice and truth cannot be presently manifest in your life if you insist on going around lying. You keep lying, that pushes out the truth. It, it's not, it's not going to work. But notice how he follows this up in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is a reference to baptism. Anytime you hear these folks talking about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ being washed, that name being called, more often than not, this is a reference to early Christian baptismal practices where the name of the Lord is called over the believers every single early Christian, this is the process they went through. They hear the news, they repent, and they don't just carry on. They go down in the water with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ being called over them so that they can come up out of the water with the power of the Spirit and launch on this new life. All of us here are guilty of unrighteousness. How do you move beyond that? You have to be washed and sanctified and transformed by God. Notice in the Gospels, Jesus does not say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't say things like, I accept you as you are, now just go out and do whatever naturally comes to mind. I love you, follow your heart. Now, The Lord does love you. He does have a great plan for your life. He does accept us. He does want us to live good lives. But he frames it like this. Mark 8, 34. If you want to be my followers, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Those are the terms that Jesus sets out. He speaks about losing one's life in order to gain it as opposed to grasping and clinging onto it and as a result, losing it for sure. Jesus' call to discover in the present time the habits of life, which point us forward, which anticipate the coming kingdom of God, only makes sense when we learn to follow him. Our writer has a little excerpt from this theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come And die. Why is that so important? Jesus taught. That humans. Have a sickness of heart. That all attempts at self remedy. Or betterment. Cannot cure. That's why we need Jesus. He doesn't come. Just pointing out the problem. So that now we can fix it. He doesn't just diagnose the problem like some of the other Greek philosophers and say, you need to transform your character, get to work. He diagnoses it, but then he makes it clear, yes, the sickness of heart has to be dealt with, but it is a work that begins in God. It's a work of grace that takes place in one's life, that allows one to now take up these new habits. These new mindsets. If we can say it like this: if the project of God's kingdom is to be truly realized, people being gathered into God's ongoing work, practicing their new vocation, learning the language associated with the life of freedom, setting aside the habits of the slave life, this matter of the heart is first and foremost on the list of things that have to be addressed. The corruption, the decay, the chaos of the old world, of the old human heart, these habits and patterns of thought, imagination and life, they can't just be overcome. They have to be killed. That's what Bonhoeffer is saying. That's what these writers are pointing towards, when they read the scriptures, they see quite clearly, when Jesus calls you, it's not, yippee, let's just take off and have a good time. It's before we can embark on this new journey, Jesus is saying, come and die. Now that may be why some folks aren't so interested in being a follower of Jesus. Because they want to skip right to the abundant life skip right to all the wonderful things that God talks about that are coming to bear in the new reality. But you can't get to the new reality in the old habits. The old ways of thought cannot bring about the goodness of God. The wrath and deceit and struggle and strife of humanity cannot bring God's kingdom into reality. It doesn't work like that. The way to the kingdom is the way of the cross. Remembering, of course, the kingdom here is not just what happens when you die, but it's the state of affairs where God's kingdom has come. His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. The doorway that everyone must pass through is the cross. Otherwise, you can't enter into the new life. You can't enter into the new reality without the old reality being put to death, Our writer in, in, in the chapter makes an observation I think is really, really, really spot on. He says, one of the telltale signs of the corruption and decay of the old life is human pride. And because human pride is such a primary indicator of the old life, this should clue us into the fact that there would be no place in the life to come, for the kind of virtue which saw itself as being self-made, that's the old life. That's not the habit of freedom. This transformation, thats a work of grace. It's because of the work of Jesus. And so in this sense, Jesus is our leader. He's the one that we are following. He calls people, come and follow me. But it's important to be accurate about what we mean when we say we're called to follow Jesus, that Jesus is the new Adam, he's the model. Because if we're not careful, we get mixed up about what that means, we set ourselves up for failure. Jesus doesn't say in the Gospels, this is how it's done, now just copy me. He says, kingdoms at hand, take up your cross and follow me. That's a really important distinction, and only when we learn the difference between those two calls, copy me, follow me, if we misunderstand that, we're not going to grasp the heart of the gospel. When you read the gospels, the epistles, the earliest Christians were convinced that Jesus was in a category of one. He was, to be sure, fully human, but he's also Identical with the one through whom all things were made. We are called to follow Jesus into this new reality. But Jesus is the only sinless one. Jesus is the only perfect one. And so when we see him as a model, what we see is not so much how to do it as what to do. He throws open the door so that we can see This is what a new human looks like. This is what God's reality looks like as it's breaking into our world. And so he is an example insofar as he models this entirely new way of being human. And he calls us to follow him into that reality. But understand, you're not going to be perfect in this life. And if you're not perfect, it doesn't mean that you have failed in following Jesus. It means you're still a human in which the kingdom of God is breaking into your life. But some of the things that Jesus does, he does because he's God in flesh. We're not God in flesh. We're called to participate in that life. This is the image of baptism. It's not you become Jesus. It's You're now in Christ, and Christ is in you working. But we are not a whole bunch of little messiahs. There's one messiah who can forgive sins. One messiah who can heal. One messiah who can exercise all authority in heaven and earth. We are called to follow him and to allow his spirit to transform our hearts so that we can begin to learn. What is it like to live in this new reality? Jesus came to launch God's new creation. And with it, a new way of being human. A way which picked up the glimpses of right behavior that you see in ancient Israel and various uh, Greek philosophers, etc. But his way transcends all of those because he unlocks the cure for the inner person. He unlocks the cure for the sickness of the heart. It's time to follow Jesus into this new reality and to learn afresh what it means to be a human. That's our calling, to recognize first and foremost, thank God he defeated the powers of this world. Thank God he put Caesar in his place. The Lord has dealt with the devil. The devil does not run your life. The devil cannot kill you. People spend way too much time talking about the devil. Is he real? Yes, there are nefarious powers all around us. But what is the real issue at hand for you and I? It's our hearts. It's saying, Lord, I need the inner person to be transformed. Or I'm never going to be able to start practicing the thought patterns that I need to start practicing. I'm never going to be able to start anticipating the kingdom of God. If I have that same old self-centered sinful heart inside of me. You know the old uh, saying you can put a little hat and clothes on a pig but it's just a pig. You can do all kinds of things, but if the heart's not addressed, we're in deep trouble. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus' work didn't stop with putting Caesar in his place. But he offers to you and I a washing, a renewal of the inner person. What does that look like? We see Jesus and we're called to follow him. We're called to adopt his mindset. We're called to adopt his orientation toward God and towards our world, we see in Jesus the heart that loves people, the heart that is self-giving, the heart that is generous. We're called to say, now, what does that look like in our life? How can I anticipate that in my own life? How can I begin to participate and start practicing those habits, those thought patterns? That's what we have been offered today, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So what we're going to do now is turn our attention to the most vocal and influential of Jesus' earliest followers, this tireless, restless, often very puzzling character named Paul. So in chapter 5, we're going to look at how does Paul take up this challenge and think about this challenge that Jesus is now offering to his disciples, that they need to be transformed. Our prayer as a Christian should be, Lord, transform my heart. Again, this is not playing off virtue and character against rules. It's understanding the proper relationship. You don't become a Christian by mastering the rules. It's the work of God that transforms your heart. You hear the call of the gospel. You say, that's the story. That's what I need to do. That's what I'm embracing. I repent. I turn away from the kingdoms of this world. And I go down into the water and I meet him as he washes and transforms. The old man is buried so the new one can rise. And then he promises the spirit to empower, to give us the strength to write new things. What do you think it is that writes on that new heart? It's not an ink pen. It's the Spirit of God. You go down in the water so that the Lord can wash and renew. And as we walk with the Spirit, He keeps writing things on our heart. And over time, we start learning new practices. We start walking in harmony and fellowship with God as a sign, as a witness. This is what God's going to do to all of creation. Thank you for listening. Our podcasts are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. To hear more, visit us online at orogracepoint.com.